So far on this journey, I've had my eyes open to some very compelling research into the downsides of phones and social media. And there are downsides to happiness, well-being, the ability to pay attention. There were some upsides too. But from my perspective and the perspective of the research, these upsides are greatly outweighed by the downsides. But there is so much to consider. It's not a simple cut and dry decision we're talking about. You've been listening. Have you ditched your smartphone, quit all social media and embraced the analog life? Maybe you have, but I doubt it. I think this is because we haven't yet seen the whole story. I wanted to find a real-life example of someone doing the things that we as a college strive for. Making positive change, helping people, starting an ethical business, things like that. I wanted to see if it was possible to use social media positively for all these great things. So hi, my name is Kelly Tay. I am the founder of a business called Juicy Parenting. And what I do is I help Asian parents kind of move away from very old school, punitive ways of parenting, where there's a lot of yelling, a lot of hitting. In Singapore, the tool of choice is a cane, like a long bendy stick that you use to like whip kids with. Um, And I try and move parents away from that toward more evidence-based approaches because the science is quite clear that, you know, punitive, harsh ways of parenting are not only damaging, but they're also ineffective. They don't really teach any skills. I think one of the things I'm trying to show people is that you can still have a highly disciplined household. You can still raise really successful, resilient, confident kids without having to be harsh. So that's what I do. And how I do it is through an online course and also an online membership where people can basically get together, like-minded people who have done the course, they get together and they can ask any question, both to me and to the wider community. Could you, can you talk a little bit about the sort of the role that, that social media plays in, in, in all that? Yeah, so I mean, social media is just hugely important to my business. I solely market my stuff on Instagram. <laughs> I do not have any paid ads. I do not have any email newsletter yet. I will soon. Um, But basically, I've grown, I've started and grown my business through Instagram. And so social media is super important for me. It's also where basically, you know, you can't just sell people on stuff, right? You can't just be like, hi, I'm Kelly, pay me money. That's just not going to work. So I really believe in like just giving people a lot of free value, just showing people who I'm about. I just show up on social media. I share what I think. Um, I respond to comments. And... I use Instagram basically to reach people who feel like "Mm, there must be a better way to parent. I don't want to be losing my crap out of my kids every single day. There must be a better way to do this. How do you get started? How do you, how did you, how did you get your first, your first sort of critical mass of, of people on Instagram? Yeah. So funny story. It's not actually through parenting. So my account actually grew like maybe five, no more than that, like eight years ago, probably. Um, when I was doing fitness stuff. So I had been dealing with some health stuff and landed me in hospital. And I was just like, man, I don't want to come back here. Like, I'm going to find ways to like, just be a healthier person. And so I started working out because I've always been like really skinny, like not super strong person. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to like, get really strong. And so I went on this journey to work out and I started posting videos of myself working out. (laughs) And I don't know why, but I guess people like to see this like, person jumping around in her living room in workout gear, posting videos. And that's how my account grew. And then it was only after I started my business that I pivoted to start talking about parenting content. So actually, my social media start didn't happen through parenting. I actually started through fitness. 
Kelly is also building local community through social media, another thing we really value as a college. Right now in the parenting space, what makes me different is, I think, I'm going to be very candid and frank, there are a lot of respectful parenting, conscious parenting, positive parenting, whatever you want to call it, there are lots of these accounts out there, but most of them are by Caucasian people for Caucasian people. And there aren't many people in the Asian parenting space who are specifically saying, hey, this is for my community. And I do that. It's not just a business decision to say like, you know, I'm only going to market to these people. It's not just that. It's also because when I was studying this stuff, I realized a lot of what is being said sounds good in theory, but can't be applied in an Asian cultural context. There is no way that certain things that I was told to say would fly with my parents in my community. And so I think what makes me very different is I've doubled down. I've basically said, yes, I know whatever I teach is applicable to everyone, but I'm just going to double down on this community because I know it best is where I'm from. I know that there are very specific things that are unique to us and our parenting journeys that no one is speaking to right now. And so I think that is what's making, at least right now, my parenting content quite different. If you want to see this in action, you can find Kelly on Instagram, at Juicy Parenting. Because I think a lot of us become parents, some of us by accident, some of us intentionally. But what's clear is we don't go to school to learn how to be a parent, right? We learn, we go to school to learn how to drive. We learn, go to school to learn about a specific subject matter that maybe applies to our jobs. But like to me, the most important job in our life, which is raising human beings, we get no prep for, which is just insane in my opinion. And I think a lot of times with parenting, we care so much, obviously, about our kids. We research for like five hours the best stroller, the best, I don't know, baby monitor, whatever it is, the best dance school. But do we apply that same kind of rigor to ourselves and our skills as parents? And I guess the message I would tell people is like, take a very critical look at how much you are investing in yourself as a parent. Kelly's story is brilliant, but it's not unique. Kelly's not alone. Millions of people around the world market their businesses, make important connections, advocate for change and genuinely make a difference online and on social media. We want to prepare our students for the real world, enable them to go out there and do what Kelly has done. Make a difference, start businesses, use technology to communicate their message, be authentic, stick to your values, spread the UWCSEA mission. What does that mean? What does our mission mean? Here's Ellie Olchin, our Director of Teaching and Learning at Dover Campus. Our mission is very, very powerful. Um, and when we think about mission competency, we're thinking about what our knowledge and skills and understandings are equipping our students to be able to do when they go out into the world. And I think it, the reality is that we, we live in a very technological world. Social media and mobile phones and devices and things are not going to go away. It's just going to intensify. So really to be doing our job properly we need to be preparing our students to be able to engage in meaningful and positive ways with the world that they're going to find themselves in in the future and not just the world that they're in now we need them to be able to engage in the debate and the discussions and to understand about distractions and to understand about all the um, complexities around this and, and the impacts that mobile device use can have on them socially and psychologically and emotionally and, and everything like that so that they can be the sort of um, change makers um, you know in the world that we want them to be but in order to be able to do that they need to understand the limitations and the, and, and the opportunities and um, and to really be able to engage in thoughtful ways um, uh, with, with social media and 
and you know are we are we concerned about the impact of of social media and and um mobile devices on 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 young minds and on adult minds as well yes of course we are and we want our young people to be be leaders in that conversation in the future so let's look to the future what are we preparing our students for we would be fools in fact I would go as far as to say we would be negligent to think that tech is going to stay the same. Here is the key point that I want to make here. Once they graduate, our students will be immersed in a world of social media and devices, whether we like it or not. First, let's look a little bit into the future. Our high school students will graduate between one and three years from now. What do we want for them? Well, it's no different to anything else in life. We want them to be equipped to make the right choices. Take well-being and happiness, for example. Something that we established has the potential to be detrimentally affected by devices. How can we support students to make the right choices for their well-being? I'm here in the Templar again, and I'm going to be asking students how they make the choices of who to follow on social media. What informs those choices? I follow what I'm interested in and like obviously I don't want to follow people who are like controversial or like unethical but if it's something that's in my interest and the person is actually like contributing to a good environment then I follow them. If it's like people that I know or like friends of my friends I really check that I know who they are. I wouldn't follow someone that I have no idea who it is. Uh, I mostly follow my friends but like when it comes to like some like a wider wider perspective, I'll say mostly entertainment. Um, I think I choose who to follow on like social media based on like content I see that's like interests me. So this could be like food content. So I'd like follow them because I'm engaged by what they're posting. Like I normally just follow my friends, and then like any I guess like celebrities that I like look up to or like am interested in work that they've done, and then also like for the content they post. Okay. I, mean, I like follow like. Feminist, <laughs> like that's like an Instagram account, and like I guess for me it's more just to, like educate myself. I follow like a lot of news, social media accounts, so that like, and I guess it's also like my own like morals and whatever, like my own values. I that is reflected upon who I follow. Like I just don't follow people who like promote things that I don't agree with or like. I know, like, are causing problems or, like, would give me problems. A recent study of thousands of high school students in Norway found that an educational program surrounding media literacy, body image, and lifestyle choices significantly reduced instances of self-harm, eating disorders, and significantly increased the positive body image and self-esteem of female students, who we already know are most affected by social media. This supports other research findings from places like Spain, Australia and other countries that sustained education and structured interventions boost self-esteem and increase something called body image flexibility, for example. The ability to experience a range of emotions and feelings about your body and still make choices that are true to your values. We want our students to feel good about themselves for the rest of their lives, not just during school hours when we happen to have removed their phones, right? Here's Jason Housenloy, one of our grade 11 students who has had an in-at-the-deep-end experience with mobile devices, transitioning from no-phone middle school to phones-everywhere high school. The thing that I would be most excited about is 
um, empowering students with means um, means of self-control because I not only had to learn the idea that I needed self-control, but I needed to learn the methods of how to. And I think at the moment, a crucial gap within the school syllabus or like within like my own personal and social education is the fact that like um, that those two those two pieces need to be taught either more explicitly. Yeah, they need those two pieces need to be taught more explicitly. Our mission compels us to go even further for our students. We want them to use what they've learned at school as a force to unite people, nations, and cultures, to stand up for change. For example, to tackle some of the problems facing society that we've already talked about in this podcast series. Um, If we think back to industrialization in the 19th and 20th centuries, that was also a very bleak time, very much like now. Employers had all the rights. That's Shoshana Zuboff, MIT professor and the person who coined the term surveillance capitalism. There were no workers' rights. There were no consumers' rights. We fought as a society, the public, together with lawmakers, to eventually, in the third and even into the fourth decade of the 20th century, produce the new charters of rights and laws and the new kinds of democratic institutions to oversee it all that we would need to make the industrial century safer democracy. And it's exactly that kind of challenge that we face right now. Our students go on to be lawmakers, company directors, activists, thought leaders. We want them to be fully equipped to do that in a world saturated with ever-advancing technology. Is taking their phones off them during the school day the best way to nurture this advocacy? Let's look a bit further into the future. There's a famous law in computer science called Moore's Law, after Gordon Moore, the founder of Intel. In 1975, almost 50 years ago, Moore predicted that computer power would roughly double every two years. And he was right. Even now, this exponential growth in computing power is continuing, making the iPhone 14 about 5,000 times more powerful than the supercomputers of the 1980s, which weighed about two and a half tons. So, what happens when we fast forward another 15 years? Here's Jason Hausenloy again with his prediction for the future based on artificial intelligence taking over a lot of the jobs that we do today. So I mentioned earlier that we can focus on individuals, but another thing this will allow us to do is focus on humanity. And I think um, this is fairly exciting for me, for me personally, because there are a number of problems that we've not been able to devote our full attention on because we've had to work within the confines of this um, this race um, to to succeed or to to make maximum short term contribution to society. But I anticipate in a world where like this is no longer necessary, I can, for example, focus on longevity research which i think is incredibly interesting and like an incredible fertile like an incredibly fertile area that like people aren't thinking about because there's no profit in it or the expansion of humanity to multiple planets now whether you think that prediction is wildly optimistic or not in 15 years our primary school students will enter the workforce 15 years ago was 2008 In 2008, people were getting excited about the second-generation iPhone, which was the first one to have 3G internet and GPS. The Android operating system was put into a phone for the first time. Blackberries were still outselling iPhones two to one. The next 15 years will see even greater change if Moore's Law holds. Perhaps the most obvious change that is visible at the moment is artificial intelligence, or AI. 
AI is a big change. Here's Sundar Pichai, CEO of Google and Alphabet. I've said this before, AI is one of the most profound things we are working on as humanity. It's more profound than fire or electricity or any of the other bigger things we have worked on. This thing, AI, that is still in its infancy, that one of the leading minds in the whole world of technology is describing as having an effect on society more profound than fire, this thing is in our devices already. And it's only going to get more powerful, more sophisticated, more prevalent. AI can already compete effectively against world-class debaters on key issues. Greetings, Harish. I have heard you hold the world record in debate competition wins against humans. But I suspect you've never debated a machine. Welcome to the future. I will argue that we should subsidize preschools. We are going to talk about financial issues, but not only about them. In the current status quo, we accept that the question of subsidies goes beyond money and touches on social, political and moral issues. So is AI going to become more and more adept at persuading us, influencing our decisions? Here's Professor Yuval Harari, best-selling author of books about humanity like Sapiens and Homo Deus. Another way to think of it is that AI has just hacked the operating system of human civilization. The operating system of every human culture in history has always been language. In the beginning was the word. We use language to create mythology and laws, to create gods and money, to create art and science, to create friendships and nations. Through its mastery of language, AI, as I, also, as I said, could also form intimate relationships with people and use the power of intimacy to influence our opinions and worldview. Now, in June 2022, there was a famous incident when the Google engineer Blake Lemoine publicly claimed that the AI chatbot Lambda, on which he was working, has become sentient. This very controversial claim cost him his job, was fired. Now, the most interesting thing about this episode wasn't Lemoine's claim, which was most probably false. The really interesting thing was his willingness to risk and ultimately lose his very lucrative job for the sake of the AI chatbot that he thought he was protecting. Beyond AI, biotechnology is another field that is just beginning to bloom. Soon, devices and technology will have not just our social data, but our health data too, thanks to wearable and implantable tech that makes your Fitbit or Garmin watch look like a kid's toy. What happens then? When fitness and health social media apps like some kind of supercharged Strava start holding, keeping and sharing our detailed health stats? What about public discourse? Already fragmented, abbreviated, polarized. There's nothing suggesting this trend won't continue. Computers and AI prefer this kind of communication because it means they can profile us more easily. Confined to our echo chambers, our conversation will become more and more homogenous. As technologist and author David Auerbach puts it, assisted by immersive technologies like VR, these communities will feel considerably more real than today's communities, which themselves already hold a grip over so many. Fake news could become an even greater problem, 
as the means to generate extremely believable, personally and psychologically tailored media becomes easier. This sounds like a pretty bleak world. But what if we had a generation of people who are embedded within this world, but have the tools, understandings and values to manage and limit its negative effects, while boosting its positive effects? If AI can provide extremely compelling arguments, it could be used to manipulate people at the bidding of unscrupulous, profit-hungry tech giants, or it could be used to build empathy and open our eyes to alternative points of view and perspectives, allowing us to challenge our bias and work towards a more peaceful world. If more of our health data becomes integrated into our online personas, this could amplify health inequalities, giving employers, loan providers, even potential spouses more reasons to reject already marginalised groups. Or it could be used to spot pandemics before they develop, diagnose and treat diseases before they even become symptomatic, or extend public health initiatives to those who are the most medically vulnerable in real time. The evolution of social media could drive us into ever tighter feedback loops of bots and people who say and think exactly what we do. Or, regulation change could usher in a new era of social media, where it helps you stay connected in person to people who are physically near you, helps you constructively challenge your worldview by curating a blend of items for your newsfeed and prioritising things that make you happy over things that make you outraged. Which of these worlds would you rather live in? So, so we have to advocate not only for the school and education we want, but for the society we want. So it's trying to advocate for that, the society we want with AI as part of it, rather than AI created this society that now we have to exist in. That was Ben Clapp, who's the Director of Teaching and Learning on East Campus, and students agree with him. And then I, I think this kind of personal and social development aspect, like how do we want us to be in a society, is the thing that I would be most excited to talk about or like for schools to focus on. The world is going to need lawmakers, CEOs, technologists, and digitally fluent leaders in all kinds of different industries to take us in the right direction and advocate for the society that we want. We have a responsibility to our students and to our mission to support our students in becoming these people and these advocates. To do this, we've got to provide an environment where students can learn and experience digital society and the digital world in a scaffolded, supported way. I want our students to notice habits in themselves and others, develop a deep understanding of how to use tech constructively in a working environment and mitigate its downsides. I don't want to bury their heads in the sand until the end of grade 12. I want them to get angry about the way the world works and then go and fix something. Do we achieve this with a whole college phone ban? I'm not sure we do. Two of my favourite authors, Yuval Harari and Johan Hari, both reach remarkably similar conclusions in their very different respective books, Homo Deus and Stolen Focus, about what the future holds. They both say basically this. Society will be divided into two groups, much like it is today, but more extreme. There will be an elite group of people who can manage their attention, stay happy and healthy, who run tech companies and use our data to make themselves more elite, more wealthy, and use technology to extend both their lifespan and their reach. 
And then there will be the rest of us who supply the data making all this happen. I think there's another possible path. One where there are more people like Kelly who are using this tech to make us connect more and be more human. One where we understand and have ownership over our data and where companies are incentivized to help us be happy. A peaceful and sustainable future. Special thanks to Kelly Tay, founder of Juicy Parenting, for sharing her story in this episode. A reminder, if you want to check out her resources or find out more about the respectful parenting movement, head to at Juicy Parenting on Instagram. Thanks to Ellie Olchin, Ben Clapp, Jason Hausenloy, and the other students who shared their thoughts during this episode. Music credits to Esther Abrami. Music